0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell, I'm the Chief Exec of the Foundation. Now, we're going to talk about young people and mental health. Uh, this morning I'm I'm hoping we've got about an hour and a quarter so we are going to get past the is it real uh, stage of the debate which seems to dominate the large uh, majority of the discussions is the increase in mental ill health that we're seeing reported by young people um, a real thing or not and we're going to do that because we're going to show you some of the consequences not just the causes but the consequences of mental ill health we're going to talk in particular about the uh, those in education and those in the economy and how those two things interact and encourage you to focus on uh, that. And then we're going to step back and say, okay. obviously in an ideal world, and people with much more expertise than those in the Resolution Foundation on this issue are going to be focused on actually what we do to get down the levels of mental ill health. um, But we also need to deal with its consequences, and policy needs to wrestle with that. And so we're going to set out some of the suggestions from a report we published this morning with the kind support of the Health Foundation, who I'll come back to praise even further in a second. um, And you're going to hear from one of the report's authors, Louise Murphy, who's a senior economist here at the foundation. She's going to give you an overview in about 10 minutes of, of a much longer report that we published today. As I say, going through those trends, but also going through what should we actually start to do about this. um, And then we're going to have a great panel to help us dig through that issue. So first of all, you're going to hear from Alison McGovern, MP, who's the shadow minister for work and pensions and a Liverpool fan. So you need to be nice to her uh, this morning. She's had a busy 24 hours.
1: OK, my head's not that bad, it's fine. <laughs> okay,
0: good, good, that's, that's encouraging awesome. So we're here from Madison, and then we're going to hear from Dr. Annie Irvin, who's a lecturer in social policy and public manage- management at the University of York, and has written extensively on these issues. And then you're going to hear from Joe Bibby, who's a director of health at the Health Foundation. As I say, they are not only supporting our work on young people in this area, but a number of other organizations in the similar space. And that's been a really great program. So we'll hear from Joe. And then we'll hear from all of you. So if you go on to Slido, it is hashtag young people. Very imaginative hashtag there. And you can put in questions and we might get time for some polls as well there. So that is the plan this morning. Louise, over to you, tell us what was in the report.
2: Perfect. Um, Thank you, Torsten, and I'd like to start by thanking my co-author, Charlie McCurdy, as well as our colleague, Lindsay Judge, for her support with this project. Um, And just to reiterate, a big thank you also to the Health Foundation for kindly uh, funding this stream of work. So, the unfortunate backdrop to this project is that we have a rising number of young people um, with mental health problems. As the chart on the screen shows, um, by 2022, around one in three young people are estimated to have a common mental disorder, and that includes things like anxiety, depression, and bipolar disorder. And we can see that this has risen quite steeply since the mid-2010s. And this is particularly the case for young women among whom around two in five, so 40%, um, are estimated to have a, a mental health problem compared to the, the lower proportion of young men, among whom it's only around one in four. And while, as, um, oops, as Torsten said, you know, we're only really just beginning to understand the root causes of this trend and that's certainly uh, you know, beyond the, the, the scope of the Resolution Foundation or, or, or this report, What is clear is that this is already having big, real-world impacts. For example, as we can see on the screen, the number of young people being prescribed antidepressant drugs has increased again quite dramatically since 2015, up from around 9% to 12% of young people aged 18 to 24 in England. That equates to around half a million young people being prescribed these drugs. And it's also showing up in other domains, for example in the benefit system where the number of young people being um, awarded PIP, the main disability benefit, has tripled since 2016 when we look at new claims among young people um, whose health condition is a, a psychiatric one. But we look at another worrying aspect of this mental health crisis and that's the impact that it has on the labour market. We know that young people with mental health problems are much more likely than their healthier peers to be out of work. And in fact, the number of young people not working due to sickness has doubled in the past decade, reaching just under 200,000 last year. And what this chart hopefully shows is just how important that is when we look at, you know, the the impact that has on the, the labour market overall. So, first of all, when we look at the left-hand panel of this chart, what we're showing is the proportion of people um, by different age groups, that's what's on the, the bottom-hand axis, who report that they have a disability and their main health condition is a mental health problem. We can see back in the, the 90s, 25 years ago, there was like a fairly clear trend with older people being more likely to be uh, disabled with, with a mental health problem than younger people. But by 2022, this picture looked really quite different. Not only are the levels of people reporting these disabilities higher, but what we've also seen is that the, the, the shape of the curve looks different, which with actually young people in their late teens and twenties and more likely to have this sort of a disability than, than their older, older peers. And then when we look at the, the right-hand side of the, the chart, we can see the knock-on impact that this is having on the, the shape or the, the state of the labour market. Again, 25 years ago, there was a very clear gradient with older people much more likely to be out of work due to ill health than younger people. But now what we see is this sort of U-shaped curve with actually young people in their early 20s more likely to be out of work due to ill health than those in their 30s or early 40s. But when we're thinking about what we should do about this, which is definitely the the hope of, of what we'll discuss today, It's important to dig a bit deeper and to think about which young people are really at the sharp end of this crisis. And what this chart shows when we look at the top bar is that it's young non-graduates with mental health problems who face what we think of as a double disadvantage when it comes to their prospects in the labour market. So one third of these young people are currently workless and they face disadvantage in the labour market both due to their ill health but also due to their low levels of qualifications. And this trend continues when we look at young people who are in employment, for example, with young non-graduates with mental health problems, the the group most likely to be in low paid work. And finally, when we want to think about this this trend of young people that um, are non-graduates with mental health problems being at the the sharp end of this crisis, it's important to consider how young people and, and children's mental health impacts their education. What this chart shows is school absences, which is a very topical part of this debate. And what we can see quite clearly when we look at the bottom bar is that it's young people with mental health problems who are much more likely to to miss a significant chunk of school than their healthier peers. So in the the pale blue over to to the side, we can see that around one in eight children age 11 to 18 miss more than 15 days of the autumn term in 2023 when we look at those with a a probable mental health condition. On the other hand, what we can see in the top bar is that among young people without those health problems, that figure is only one in 50. So it's quite a significant difference. And this trend is also true when we look at other aspects of of school and education with children with mental health problems, less likely to enjoy school and also um, less likely to pass their their GCSEs in, in Maths and English than their healthier classmates. So it's hopefully clear that we have a problem. you have got rising numbers of children and young people with poor mental health and this is having knock-on impacts on education and employment. But, of course, we think that just identifying that problem isn't isn't enough and so for the rest of the discussion, what I'll uh, focus on is some priority areas of action that we've identified, both from doing the analysis that I've summarised but also from speaking to young people so we held three focus groups with young people many of whom had mental health problems to hear from them about both their experiences and their suggestions for you know what might help them to to, to find and sustain good quality work first of all we think that it's really important to invest in mental health support at an early stage so that young people um, have less of a chance of entering adulthood, making that important transition burdened by poor mental health. What we see in this chart shows us that investing in mental health support within schools and colleges is important, as well as looking at wider NHS-provided healthcare. What we can see in the red box is that two in five young people who sought, sought support for their mental health received it and found it beneficial when they did so through an educational setting like a school or a college. And quite surprisingly, and perhaps quite encouragingly, that, that figure is very similar to those who found um, received support and found it useful from a specialist mental health service like, like CAMHS. But I think what also stands out from this chart is just that mental health support within schools and colleges are much more accessible to young people. Again, we heard that loud and clear in our focus groups that you know, in reality, school and college is where young people go day-to-day, it's where they feel safe a lot of the time, and so we think that investing in this sort of support is, is a good approach. But importantly, what the status quo isn't, isn't good enough, and we think that one important and under-discussed aspect of, of this is that we need to do more to focus on colleges where young people that are really at the sharp end of this crisis, so that's those young people not set for university tend to end up. What this chart shows is the rollout of mental health support teams, one of the government's current strategies of increasing mental health support in educational settings and what we can see is overall among children and young people in secondary schools and post-16 settings around two and five um, have access to this sort of support but that ranges hugely with around half of those in schools compared to only around a third of those in post-16 settings having this this support available to them. So we think that as well as rolling out this um, this support more widely we need to do so with um, keen awareness that, that those in colleges shouldn't be left behind. Secondly we think it's important to um, improve young people's support to get these key qualifications alongside this early intervention in uh, healthcare. We heard from young people about how important it was um, to to support them during resets. We heard just how common it is for young people to to fail exams and have to reset it but often that can be an embarrassing and an unpleasant thing to to go through. As one young person put it, people often put stigma on uh, retaking and being a year 12 retake, I was 18 in a class of 16 year olds and I felt embarrassed about it. Now I'm 19, in year 13 I don't have any friends anymore since they all graduated. And what we heard from young people was, at the moment, they just didn't feel supported, either academically or, or pastorally, um, to be able to, to thrive or, or make the most of that chance to to reset. So again, as one young person said, to, to sum this up, I think that chance to retake my GCSEs was sort of like the chance to improve, but there was no help for me there. There was nothing. It was just like, OK, well, you failed, basically. So we must do better. And we think that means increasing wraparound support for young people who, who fail these exams and reset them. And Crucially, we should do that at an early stage while they're still in compulsory education. And this chart hopefully sums up why that is. Simply in the UK, we just don't have many uh, chances to, or second chances to get these qualifications later in life. We can see the proportion of young people with level two or level three qualifications, which is uh, pretty much GCSE or A level, plateaus as young people reach their their early 20s. Um, By and large, young people just don't don't retake these exams in in adult life. And so we should really focus on young people in that 16 to 18 age age group and support them at that vital stage. Thirdly, um, we should do more to support young people during their transition into adulthood. I'm sure we all know and remember that that can be a tricky time for anyone as you're kind of going through this, this big transition, but it's especially important to focus on the, those young people with mental health problems um, for whom that transition can be especially daunting, as one young person put it. There are kids that know what they want to do and know that they're of so, so sound of mind to do that and I didn't feel like that. So to them, their, their mental health problem was an, an extra area of, of uncertainty and, and worry for them during this period. And when we think about you know, what, what does support look like, what support do young people need during this time, it came out loud and clear that simply supporting young people with the act of searching for a job isn't enough. In fact, young people spoke quite candidly about the fact that in this era of online job, uh, job search websites, they felt pretty comfortable to do that on their own. And instead, what they wanted was more holistic um, support with finding you know, good quality jobs and help with, with interviews and, and so, so on. Again, one young person sums this up by saying, from what I've experienced, getting an interview is like very easy, but then once you're in the interview, it's like a whole different ballgame. So instead, we think we need better and more accessible pathways for young people not set to go to university. What we can see on this chart is that there's a huge gap when it comes to young people's access and availability of careers, information and, and advice with those on the, the left and the, the paler purple being those young people not bound for university, whereas those on the on the right and the darker colour being those people planning to go to university who by and large are much more likely to have received that, that type of support. And what we think could be a, a good way to, to go about this is by expanding and, and reforming the DWP Youth Hub uh, support that, that exists in, in some form at, at the moment, which basically provide some DWP led employment support alongside more holistic advice and and support for example with with mental health. But what we think is important is that this support is available to all young people and not just those in receipt of benefits like universal credit, particularly because the proportion of workless young people claiming these benefits is, is decreasing. So now only around two in five workless young people are actually in receipt of these means-tested benefits, with the majority being barred from from accessing this DWP support. And finally, we think that we shouldn't overlook the importance that employers play in supporting young people with mental health problems, not least because a good chunk of of young people aged 18 to 24 are already in employment. And this came out loud and clear when we we spoke to young people um, about how important it is for for, uh, you know, for, for work to, to um, have a good approach to mental health and on the flip side, just how detrimental it can be to uh, be particularly in some quite intense and, and stressful sectors like retail and hospitality, where many young people just felt like there wasn't good support out there at the moment with one young person saying, I think I missed out on that good mental health support. in my previous job, it was a hospitality job, a bar, restaurant thing. It got quite stressful and I don't feel like I had someone to go to, really. But on the other hand, we did hear some really inspiring examples of young people whose managers and employers have really done done the right thing to help them manage their their health in the world of work. For example, one young person who worked in uh, in retail summed it up by saying um, how, how much she valued her manager when she said the area manager's come in and has made a mental health plan for me my triggers and things that, that can they can notice if I start getting anxious now we've got that in place, it's in the safe so only the managers can see it it's so much nicer So, of course, rolling this out and improving management quality across the country is no easy task but we think that we should learn from the past when we've had high instances of work-related problems and we've taken action. For example, in the 1990s and 2000s, when we had a rising prevalence of back pain and other musculoskeletal problems, we introduced health and safety legislation, manual handling guidance, um, and that was in reality focused on specific sectors like construction and and healthcare. And what this chart shows is that since 2016, mental health problems have actually overtaken musculoskeletal problems as the leading cause of work-related illness. So we should treat it with the same importance as we did musculoskeletal problems a few decades ago. In practice, that means targeting the the sectors where young people are concentrated, like retail and hospitality, and mandating uh, these employers to improve their management practices around mental health uh, understanding. So to conclude, we think that these four priority areas for action, Um, focusing on early intervention uh, in schools and colleges, focusing on those young people who reset exams, improving pathways for those young people not set for university, and also improving management in these key sectors, together can really make a difference to improve young people's experience of the world of work.
0: Thank you, Louise. As we say at the beginning, that's that scratching on the surface of what is in the report. So read the whole thing, but don't read it right now because you're going to hear <laughs> from Alison instead.
1: Thanks, Torsten, and thanks, Louise. And um, great to be here with everybody um, on what is a really, really important subject for all of the reasons that Louise just set out. Um, let me just say before I um, make some comments in response to what Louise has said, we first started talking to each other about this during COVID lockdown, I think, and have done a lot since. And I would say that Louise's work, along with her colleagues, has really shaped my thinking on this. So thank you, funders. Because I think it shows how good data and good research can have real impact. And I just want to say um, three things very briefly about the shape of that thinking and um, where I feel we could really make a difference on geography, on public services working properly, um, and on youth futures hubs, which I think respond very well to this need to have um, an open setting for young people where they can receive broad support. So firstly, on um, geography, I think the one bit of thinking that has really struck me on young people and where they are is just how varied the country is in terms of opportunities in the world of work but opportunities to get into the world of work usually on education um, and on some things as basic as public transport which if you're a young person in a rural or rural ish area or even a part of a big city that just happens to have chronically bad public transport your experience of the help you might receive will be very different. And we know the challenges with education and different levels of attainment. And Louise set out all of the consequences. Um, And I guess my conclusion from that is that as a country, we have to think of our labor market and the opportunities it offers young people much more with the geography of it in mind than we have done to date. One size fits all won't help um, when the country is so very different. Second point. it should surprise nobody here that Keir Starmer would like us to have a mission-led government. And I would say that the interventions we need to make for young people are at the intersection of our growth mission and our opportunities mission. Because has set out quite clearly the barrier to growth that this represents now and will continue to represent. And we also know through long history on the data that problems at the beginning of your life in work Echo down the years. That's why this is important. Of course, anyone of any age should have support when it comes to what's happening in their income and in the job opportunities. But the consequences for young people are big, and that's why um, DWP, that policy that I've been working on, I think must be thought of as the HR department of the Growth Mission. We are there to think about. The labour supply and where people are at so this that just shows how this area of getting it right for young people and getting those roots in and roots up will be have a much greater impact when we're thinking about the overall economic shifts that Torsten often talks about in our in our and the challenges we face in our country and finally on youth futures hubs and um, i could for England on this topic because we, um, Labour, have set out a plan to have a mental health hub for young people in every community, a sure start for young people, if you like, a kind of um, place where people can go to receive mental health support, but actually all kinds of um bits of access, bits bits of the state that they might need. Somebody might go in for to access some CBT, for example, but they might also need help thinking about their route back into further education and getting advice on, on that. And I really think that this will work, and one of the reasons I believe it will work is because we already have such a thing in the Wirral. Um, the Open Door charity for a long time has been running mental health support for um, 18 to, no younger than that, in fact, Um, 15 to 24 year olds uh, on an open access basis and um, that charity now works very well with our NHS and one of the great successes of it and if anybody would like to visit the world you'd be most welcome, one of the great successes of it is that young people who've received support through Open Door are then enabled to volunteer and to become part of the organisation so you can imagine what good that does not only has that young person then got really good life experience um, of volunteering and being part of an organisation. But it also stands completely obvious that it is a lot easier to support young people if you yourself are a young person. So I think we've got that model there. Um, From a Labour frontbench point of view, we are really committed to developing this idea across all of the different departmental briefs. It obviously affects health, home office policy, DWP, education, and we want to work all together to try and get it right. That vision of every young person in our country, knowing where they can go and who they can talk to, to get a bit of help and support, I think will really be worth having. Great, thank you very much indeed, Arsene.
0: And we should come, let's come back to that issue about um, uh, what you positively would call joining up and what you would negatively call the silos of government and how on earth you deal with an issue which does stretch right across everyone's responsibilities.
3: Annie. Thank you, Um, thank you very much Louise and Torsten for the invitation to come and be part of this conversation today. Um, I'm going to focus mostly on the employment theme because that's the bit I'm more acquainted with. Um, I'm saying sort of two, two things really about the report, I think firstly it's a really really useful detailed look at the recent trends and correlations in young people's mental health and their work and education outcomes. I think the full report is it's extremely hard-hitting and very clearly presented, so hopefully it's going to start or propel some of these really important conversations and make anybody who wasn't aware of this issue really sit up and pay attention to, to it. I think particularly the analysis by graduate and non-graduate is a really valuable contribution because that starts to shed light on the importance of context and how we can't treat young people as this one homogenous group because there are a lot of different experiences within that, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second. Regarding the rise in prevalence, I think Torsten us a really good setup on this, that there's obviously ongoing long-term debates and going back many, many years and centuries about how we conceptualize mental health and how that changes over time and what is and what isn't within scope. And I think this morning isn't really the the place to unpack that. Um, Although I do want to mention the really important work of Lucy Folkes and colleagues at Oxford who are doing really essential research trying to understand what's going on with young people's changing conceptualizations of mental health and the implications of that for various areas of policy. But I think the important thing that this report really highlights is that more and more young people are expressing distress of some kind. More and more of them think something isn't right about the context and the world, the society they're growing up in, and how that's making them feel about their lives. So I think regardless of whether we've got personal or political or academically informed views on on how we define this concept, something is going on that needs attention, and I think this report really shines a light on that. The second thing, though, and if I was able to sort of offer a bit of challenge to the report, is, um, is some linked issues. It's the slight blurring of um, correlation with causality. And I think that does stem from the boxing off of the context of, of what is propelling these, because those, the causes and the context do, are essential to, to shaping policy responses. So although the report um, says you we're know, looking at causes beyond scope, that's fair enough. But I don't think we can start to try and design policy solutions without looking at the root causes of what's, what is driving this. Um, so I think in the report, the way it reads, there's a slight tendency to sort of position the mental health problems as the reason that young people are struggling in employment or in education. But there's always a story behind that. There's always, there's always a story behind this distress. And, and that needs to be included in any, in any policy attempts to solve the problem. We can't simply say that mental health problems are the reason that young people are struggling. There's a wider set of challenges, of disadvantage, of trauma, discrimination, marginalisation and all these factors are crucially important to the policy response because they are the root causes of both the distress and the worklessness. And I want to try and sort of explain that a bit through some research that we've been doing at the ESRC Centre for for Society and Mental Health at King's. What I've been doing is um, longitudinal qualitative research which is taking a biographical approach to understanding people's journeys between work and welfare over time when they've lived have lived experience of mental distress but really trying to understand the complexity and the multitude of factors that lead somebody in early adulthood to be to be struggling to get that foothold in work and the, the people who i've been listening to who are of a range of ages but some are still in their, their early 20s going right through to their 50s 40s and 50s the things that that come up in their stories repeatedly are real early childhood traumas so being a young carer for a severely disabled parent um, or lo- losing a parent to suicide, that derails your education, that makes you struggle to get a foothold in the world of work. It might be that you've been a, a young parent, that you've been in a series of abusive relationships, that you've been um, a young carer for, for a, a parent who's struggling with addiction. It might be neurodiversity that's been unrecognised throughout your entire school life and has really affected your ability to form friendships and build relationships, and you've never sort of really understood why you struggle to fit in it might be that you've been sofa surfing for you know all these things often come together so all of these things make it very difficult to get um, to get through education successfully and to get that foothold in the labor market at the same time they're affecting young people's mental health but these things are operating in parallel and i think if we if we narrow the focus to calling this a medicalised issue that sits within the individual, we're missing the point, really, and missing the points of policy intervention, Um, and almost doing a disservice to these young people who are actually extremely resilient and doing everything they can. Some of them are working. You know, one of the young people I've spoken to was actually working every night after school to try and support the household financially because of the chronic poverty. Um, So I think my point is that when the report says things like it sort of, that mental health blights young people's ability to, to maintain education and work, we need to look at the range of other things that are blighting their ability in the first place. Um, and again, so if we look at this as sort of first and foremost, a health issue, again, that's slightly, um, you know, for, for some young people at certain points, that is absolutely true. But we do need to look at this wider socioeconomic context, the relational issues, the structural issues that are driving both the mental distress and the struggles in education and work. So. Thinking about responding in, in non-medicalised ways, it's things like secure and stable housing, it's support for young carers, it's support for young parents, it's support for young people who are stuck in or trying to escape abusive relationships, which all can can be part of the you know part of a complex picture that affects people in many ways. And it's a welfare system that stops threatening people constantly with sanctions and pushing them into unsuitable and un, unproductive mandatory work-related activity and it's about this person-centered employment support that takes a holistic approach to address all of these factors. And if all those things were in place, they might be equally as as effective as a course of CBT, and actually address the worklessness and the mental health in parallel. So I think just to be absolutely clear, the young people's distress is real, and, and I don't want to be at all misunderstood about that, but we can't see this solely through an individualized or a medicalized lens. We need to look at that broader context that is causing people to struggle day in, day out with, with mental health and with work. Great, thank you very much indeed,
0: Annie. Loads of great food for thought uh, there. And then last but not least, Joe.
4: Great, thank you, thanks. So um, I wanted to just provide a little bit of background as to why the Health Foundation funded this work and then some of the um, work we're also doing on health and, and working lives. And we we started what we called our young people's future health inquiry um, in 2017 in fact and the reason we did that is because we could see there was a lot of evidence about how sure start was so important for those early years but there was a question about what happens um, to young people between the ages 12 and 24 when they're also going through huge developmental phases both sort of you know biologically mentally socially uh, and you know transitioning into adulthood and we you know in public health people talk about the things that make you healthy are a home a job and a friend and that's the kind of basic thing you need in place and what we were concerned about was that young people today were perhaps not transitioning into adulthood set up in a way that would really give them those basic um, building blocks of good health so we did a two-year piece of work to look at what do we know about young people's transition into adulthood um, and whether or not they are set up to have those basic building blocks of good health. And what do we know about what helps them in that period from 12 to 24 to help with that transition? And there were four things that came out of that work. Um, and I think this report speaks to all of them in, in different ways, as, as did the other speakers. The first thing that young people told us was that it was so important to have the right skills and education. And that was the thing that really opened doors for them. Um, subsequently but they also talked about how just education and skills on their own isn't enough that there's something about the personal connections that they need to kind of translate that education skills into sort of real and meaningful work that they enjoy um, and this, the source of those personal connections varied, you know, sometimes it would be friends and families, but for many people, it would be the sorts of organisations like Open Door Charity, that lots of youth um, centres and so on, that really help young people build those wider social skills and connections and confidence that they need. The third thing young people talked about was the importance of a financial safety net. But making that transition, leaving home, you know, it's very precarious um, for everyone, but if you don't have that backup, if you don't have parents with a spare room that you can go back to if you need a bit of time, um, you know, without having to pay your own rent, um, if you don't have help, perhaps with childcare, if you've got a young family, all of this sort of support is necessary to help young people who maybe haven't got the off onto the sort of right start for them in the first place to have that second chance. And the final thing that young people talked about a lot and I think is something that we're seeing coming through um, in the sort of distress that um, has been described, is the importance of emotional support. And without emotional support, young people talking about the fact that they had nowhere to turn to, no one to talk to, and often even if there were family members who were there for them, they could see that their parents were worried about their own finances or their own issues in their lives. So these four things were identified consistently by young people as being really important for that transition into adulthood. And, um, and we found that it did, they did through the analysis, the analysis that we did, it did translate into sort of good health um, in, in sort of later life. But what we wanted to do was to then fund some organizations to really look into, Um, some of these issues in a bit more depth and so we funded five posts this was one of them Um, a couple looking at employment another one looking at transport because actually that was something that came up consistently it's that kind of really important enabler of all the things that we've been talking about Um, and we wanted to get this issue of young people's transition into adulthood on the agenda and it's just great I think seeing the attention that's been paid to the report today and, and that's clearly been a real success but I think What this paints a picture of is something that's really concerning, um, not just to young people, um, you know, clearly living with the distress um, that's described in this report will be concerning for those individuals, to their friends and families, but it's a concern to all of us because actually if we have a generation of young people who are not able to work um, that starts to affect society as a whole and i think people will be f- probably familiar with the figures there's 2.8 million working age people who are not working at present on health grounds and um, there's another 1.6 million people in work but with a work-limiting health condition so this is um, something that really is um, making our sort of labour supply quite precarious. And we did a, the Health Foundation, some of my colleagues did a report um, last summer on projections of future health. And what we found, or what's reporting there, is is this is something that isn't going away. This is a challenge that we're going to have as a society that we need to be thinking about. The report uh, Health 2040 projects that by 2040, there'll be um, an additional 2.5 million people living um, with major illness. Now, a lot of that is older people because people are living longer and with longer life does come ill health but half a million of that is projected in the working age population. So I think what we're starting to see is labor supply being squeezed at both ends. We've we've got, we're seeing these challenges that young people are facing as they're trying to get in and stay in work. And we're also seeing the effects of a population that is um, uh, growing in ill health. So I think um, what we need to um, really recognize is that, The population's health, it's not just about us as individuals. Health is important to us as individuals, but health is important collectively to us as a a society if we want to prosper. And as has kind of been mentioned as we've been going around, there isn't a single solution to this. This is about a government, a society that thinks differently about how we protect people's health and how we invest in people's health. So what we need is that whole government response um, if we're going to fix this problem. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Astro. <laughs> right. There's loads of Food for thought from all of our speakers. There's also unbelievably large volume of really good questions. So I'm slightly reluctant to say that if you want to ask even more, uh, then it's hashtag young people on Slido. Or those of you here can put your hands up. Um, like in the olden days, um, and you can ask your question that way. Um, um, uh, so we'll do that. I thought let's try to come back to some of the issues you've raised, and then do those questions in the round. Let's think about the issue itself first, and then let's come on to uh, what does anybody do about it? understanding it and then acting on it. Because I think one of the reasons why everyone finds this issue so hard, as you can hear from all of you speaking, is there's a lot of things going on, Mm. lots of things happening in people's lives long before they're showing up in educational outcomes or in health um, uh, outcomes, lots of interactions with wider societal issues, silo issues within government. It's it's hard. And generally, the danger when things are hard like that in public policy terms is people can spend a lot of time talking about the issue because it's big, lots of things to talk about uh, and find it hard to grapple with understandably because it is hard to know where to start when things are like that so let's try not to fall into that trap but let's first sort of all just dig into some of the actual some of the questions um, on the issue itself so Annie there's quite a lot there's lots of questions in this space but let's just do one and you're the one that spoke most of this which is broadly here we go from Kate so I'll bring it up on the screen behind me but I'll read it out for you which is what, what's triggering mental health problems in young people now, and has that basically changed compared to what, what we used to think? There's lots of questions in this space, and I know I said at the beginning we're not going to solve this rather hard uh, problem. But as you say, it, and it is the thing that lots of people, you know, even as I was saying to you, earlier, you know, the school where I'm a governor, these issues come up, and you can just see people just really want to know what is going on. Annie, what is going on?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a huge number of things, and I think the, the report does does summarise these. It, it It's different things for different young people who've got different life circumstances. As I said, what what I'm hearing repeatedly in um, the the life history narratives of the people involved in our research is what comes under the the umbrella term of adverse childhood experiences. So growing up in poverty, growing up um, experiencing abuse. That might be in the family home. It might be in in relationships that develop um, homelessness. but it, it's, it's, bereavement is another one. But mm. but it, it there's, there are so many different things going on. Um, so so for the the young people who are in university, maybe they have experienced that in younger life. But then then there's there's exam stress. There's the, there's the pressure of of what they're finding in education. So I think um, I, I don't really want to spend too much of the time we've got left, sort of listing things and pontificating on it. It's, it's a, a huge number of things, and I think that does need it needs ongoing attention to to, to to map it out, even if we can't solve it or simplify it.
0: What, what, what about so one thing that you could just you can tell I mean you you not all have read all of the coverage of this this morning but there is a lot, and a lot of the coverage just focuses on, is it real, as in how much of this is either because people are pejoratively saying, the youth are soft basically, mm-hmm. they, um, or because they're saying it's not that they're soft but, we've um, stigma has been reduced in a more positive sense. It's not that people have got sicker than they were; it's that they're more. Happy to say, I have a mental health challenge.
3: It, it may be all of that, but I still think that debating over that doesn't really help us to move towards the solutions. Um, I'd say that the distress is real, no matter how we want to label it, and the parameters change. And we could also get spend a lot of time on picking whether the measures are meaningful or yep. accurate. Um, I think one thing, if I can just jump to um, the welfare side, one of the issues we have got with this rising curve in mental health-related claims is actually the, the welfare system only gives people that way of describing their distress. So again, if, if we, and we do in our research, we talk to people who are claiming benefits due to mental health problems, they can articulate the different parts of that, which will be, actually, I've been homeless for 18 months, and that is really stressful, but it's also keeping me out of work. I haven't got an address to give an employer. So, so the distress is very real, but actually it's the upshot of the reason that's keeping them out mm. of work or I'm a lone parent with no family support, this is extremely anxiety-provoking for me because we're living in poverty, but it's the childcare that would help me get into work. So, But yeah. within the welfare system, um, especially now that they have squeezed the age at which you can legitimately be a lone parent out of work, health is the only box that's given to people, and that will be, the, I say, the distress is real, but it can only be described in that way because the, the way the welfare system is designed do, doesn't have a space for people to actually describe what's going on. And I think that's, that is the value of things like the, the Youth Futures hubs. Is that right? and, and the really amazing holistic employment support that's going on in the third sector and in other places where people can go and bring their whole selves to that conversation with a compassionate, um, consistent advisor who can start to unpick and address all the components that bundle up together as a mental health issue. But if we, keep calling, if we keep addressing it primarily and foremost as a clinical health issue, we, we don't get to address all the underlying factors.
0: Great. Well, one thing I think if you, again, you, know, you should read the report, but if you do, one thing you'll take away is, that in this debate, it's complicated, as you just heard. The, um, but even if you don't want to look at the surveys of what people say about their own health, you can look at you know, the harder data on you know, a doubling of the number of young people self-harming while they're teenagers, huge increases in the numbers of young people on antidepressants. So it's not, there, there is, even if you don't like surveys of what people say about their health, there's other things to look at, or indeed the pit claims that you mentioned in your thought. Can we just bring a microphone down to this gentleman here? And while he does, one thing I think uh, Louis' view on gender, so generally the discussion of these issues is, rightly usually starts from the much higher prevalence of mental ill health from as much younger women. But one thing that surprised me in your report is actually in terms of the number of people who are not working because of mental health is much more even.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when you look at just the prevalence of, of mental health problems, there's like a really striking, pr- pretty consistent gap with young women much more likely to, to report mental health problems than young men, particularly when we look at the sort of slightly older age group, so 18 to 24, whereas among the children, um, it, it's a bit less striking. But exactly, when we look at worklessness due to ill health, in fact, sort of when we look a bit back to the 2010s, it was young men who had the, the higher rates of worklessness due to ill health, and actually, it's sort of really more in the last five years or so that we've seen a big uptick in the number of young women being out of work due to ill health. I mean, again, it kind of come back, com- comes back to Annie's point that we should think about, you know, everything else that's going on. For example, young women have historically been much more likely to be out of work for other reasons, namely mm-hmm. for care reasons yep. and Know, a proportion of those young women may have also had poor mental health but you know they' the, you know the box that they ticked might have been caring so it's definitely definitely nuanced but I think the the difference between men and women uh, is, to me is think is a, is a nice reflection of just how important education is because again we just know that there's very different educational outcomes of girls and, and boys or young women and young men for example with young women now much more likely to go to university so probably no one simple explanation but I think looking at differences by by sex actually are quite um, quite informative.
0: Go ahead sir give us your name. Hi uh, I'm Joshua Forrester from Papyrus Prevention of Young Suicide. Thank you all for speaking today. You know we know there's a connection between mental health and suicide and this connection between unemployment and suicide obviously goes both ways. Our hope line says that um, Sui- uh, unemployment and economic uncertainty is one of the maining causes of suicide ideation for young people. So I'm just wondering, and it's great to hear it's cross-departmental. Alison, would be great to talk about it. But um, how do we support young people who are unemployed, who don't have access to the good managers initiative that you want to push, and how do we get across to them and realise that it does work? One affects the other, both ways. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Alison. Do you want to that?
1: Um, Yeah. So how do we? How, how do we help support young people in the labor market i think you have to look at the policy responses from both the demand and the supply side sorry to be all boring economics about it but we are at the resolution foundation so um and, not bringing us down and what i mean, <laughs> what i mean by that is on the demand side what we don't want is the problems that people are facing. What we do want is an inclusive labour market. And what I hear from the employers who put their hand up because they want to talk to politicians is, we can do this. We can provide job roles and opportunities that are tailored to be supportive of people, the ups and downs of having a mental health condition, that they're positive about flexible working and making available you know, working from home. Um, in a way that is positive about that rather than you know feeling it's a great risk to productivity but rather seeing the productivity benefits so on the on the employer side I think there's something that we can do and for the young people themselves like you're absolutely right and uh, if you look at any point in uh, history you know the some of these factors that correlate with poor mental health are all economic financial stress as a child has huge consequences. So that's why I think young people deserve quite personalised um, support when it comes to the labour market and we want to reform job centres um, to, you know, bring to an end the kind of box ticking culture and have a much more personalised support. Partly because sometimes it's not always, I think you put it really well Annie, it's not always actually, Um, about what's going on inside that person's mind or their health otherwise, sometimes it can be really practical things that you can't see from Westminster. You know, if you grow up um, on um, an estate in certain parts of big cities, you know, it might take you an hour and a half to get into the town centre to get to the FE college. And your ability to take up opportunities might be really curtailed by that we can't see that from Westminster, and that's why we need that big reform to make sure that a young person walking into a job centre receives support that is really going to help them move on and move up. Um, and we've we've got to measure it right as well. But I'm sure we'll get into that.
0: Very good. Okay. I one, so one more question on the um, on the the work side of things. So maybe, Louise, for you. But so one of the things again, if you look at the coverage this morning, you'll see is the word sick note appearing quite a lot. The um, um, now, sick notes for this, this. This is GP signing people off sick, right? To have some because they're ill. Uh, quite a lot of the flavour of the discussion is young people aren't turning up to work because of mental ill health. Is that what? Is that what the work's about, Louise? Uh,
2: no, is the short answer. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, maybe it's just sort of common parlance. Sick note is like an easy, uh, an easy way to think about this, but. Um, this, what we focused on isn't young people sort of being absent from work, it's young people not being in employment in the first place. Um, so yeah, a rising proportion of young people either never moving into employment after they leave um, compulsory education or um, having extended periods out of the, the labour market altogether. And I think just why that's important or why it's important to make a distinction is just if you don't have that link with the employer at all, um, That just means your chances of sort of returning to work are lower. You don't have access to things like occupational health or kind of any of the benefits that come with being in employment. Um, And that's, again, when we look at young people's sort of long term prospects, be it their health or their economic prospects, those sort of long periods out of employment um, can be pretty detrimental.
0: Yeah, The problem is definitely not days off sick. It's not having a job. Go
5: ahead, sir. Give us your name. Uh, Nick Owen from the Mighty Creatives in the Midlands. in the olden days, what is the, what is the mighty creatives the mighty in the days? Midlands? We're a charity um, transforming young people's lives through the power of culture and creativity. Great. And our, well, great, but our services have rocketed in the last few years, yeah. particularly through our creative mentoring and mighty employers' work, because of mental health and the stresses and strains young people are facing. And I'm reminded of two things. One is, in the olden days, you used to put canaries down mines, didn't they? Test out the kind of atmosphere. And if the atmosphere was toxic, those canaries copped it. So maybe our young people are being our canaries these days, and actually it's the toxicity of the climate they're in rather than their own particular kind of individual psychological or health uh, kind of characteristics. Uh, The second point I wanted to make was that um, we just finished a a three year programme funded through Erasmus looking at the mental health of young people across Europe with partners in Bulgaria, Spain and Italy. And one of the frightening things there was on every measure we had to do with mental health and resilience, the UK kids came down the bottom of the list every single time. We couldn't get into the thing of what caused that but it was, a, it was a thing, and we were wondering how, have you seen this Just across Europe so as well? Is it specifically in the UK that's particularly bad? Our research told us it was, I mean it was a smaller scale than the work you've been doing, but it, there's something in our climate, in our atmosphere, that is making it toxic for young people. That, you know, don't blame the canary when it kills over.
0: And don't put birds down lines.
5: <laughs> Just in general,
0: <laughs> the RSPCA do exist these days. You will be going <laughs> to jail. Uh, thank you very much for your question, sir. Right, OK, there's, there's two questions there. So the first one, so there's, there's some questions online along with similar lines, which are versions of, you put it as the climate's not conducive to things being health, healthy. Toxic. Specifically, sometimes people say, and you see this in the literature, Worries about the climate, literally, Mm. anxiety about climate change, anxiety about as the causes of this, although those are obviously cross country. But let's come back to that. So, who wants to take that one? Joe?
4: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the um, sort of approach we would take at the Health Foundation is, you know, our health is a product of the circumstances that we're living in, Um, you know, whether that's as adults or as younger people. Um, So, I think we can't look at this trend that we're seeing and think about it as an individual issue, we need to look back at the context that young people are growing up in. And I think one of the things I'd sort of also flag is that this isn't just about young people who um, are expressing mental health problems, keeping them out of work. We're also seeing young people who are in work with much higher levels of reported ill health. So um, I think 16 to 34 year olds employed in 2023 are as likely to report a work limiting condition as um, 45 to 55 year olds did 10 years ago. That's part of some work we're doing on a commission for healthy working lives. So I think, you know, we would absolutely agree this has to be looked at in terms of what are the conditions in people's lives in our society that is driving Um, These trends in poor health and how do we start to get into those root causes? um, Rather than you know, we we will never be able to provide enough individual services to meet the individual levels of need We've got to go upstream and we've got to create the conditions for young people to grow up um, And have a good prospect of future good health
1: and just if I might interject on the point of creatives I have heard of the Mighty Creatives, yeah. sorry. And I right. didn't mean All to. no right, <laughs> need to rub it in. <laughs> Some of us like but, being educated. Um, but the point about the Mighty Creatives and other organizations that take that spirit of creativity and see what good that it can do is that if we just think about this as a treatment issue or mm. an employment issue alone, we're missing a whole area of people's life that can um, be very enriching and also Self-expression can be a really good um, way of, you know, generating those feelings of well-being and happiness that can help people progress. And on that, I think, you know, what's going on in our schools, there's a lack of breadth in the curriculum, and that does have an impact. It does. We've got to get people enjoying being in school and college again.
0: Louise, Annie, do you want to come in on cross-country comparisons? No,
1: thank you.
4: <laughs> it's very honest. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, big question. Not something we looked at in detail. I mean, certainly the just rising prevalence of <coughs> mental health problems is something that's happening across, um, yeah, across the world. Really, there's lots of evidence from the US, Canada, lo- you know, lots of other countries. Um, I mean, I think the only thing I would add is just when we were thinking really about this in practical terms and thinking about solutions some of the things that we've highlighted are probably particularly bad in the UK. So for example, when we thought about, um, you know, catching up with qualifications and getting resets, we know the UK is pretty bad, uh, uh, you know, quite an outlier when it comes to being able to get these second chances later in life. Um, so that's just one angle where, you know, mm. it's not particularly about mental health, but if we just think about who these young people are, mm. if you're a yeah, 25 year old with nothing over a GCSE and the UK actually, getting that qualification and then kind of gradually stepping into good quality work is quite hard here in a way that it, it might be easier in some other countries.
3: Yeah.
0: I think that's a general point, which a lots of what you're seeing in this report is things that are just problems in Britain generally. So this is basically saying you have a school to work transition that is quite binary. You don't have a decent English and maths by 16. Mm. Things are going to be difficult. We've literally built the system like that. It's hard to move on to a college. It's then hard to find a job. It's hard to have another chance to come back. And if you don't, and that, and that is a problem generally. And then it, if, if you also have, are in these circumstances, it's much harder to rest with. Right. Let's move on to answers. I just want to start with some perkiness because it's all been a bit grim. The um, which is so one thing again I took away from your research and how you talk about it, and actually from your focus groups, Louise. And I'll come on just what you're saying on your um, uh, local services is actually things do help. Because I think a lot of, like when you have a big problem like this, one of the traumas is like, okay, which is too big, if we just don't think about it too much, maybe in 20 years it'll go away. They, um, whereas actually, what the report says is if you look at results from things that are on from the medical side, so are, are or you look at, um, things more from the employment, more from the actual market side, or you look at what people say about if they had a good manager, on all fronts, it's actually surprisingly positive. Things actually do make quite a big um, difference. So I'll bring out one question here from Carol Race, very racy name, Carol. On a more positive note, Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough Council funds public health They're running a successful program called Head Start, rolled out across primary schools in the Tees Valley, Oh, we can't fit the whole question in. Basically, he says it's good <laughs> the, um, on the text there, um, and that's the same story you're Reporting. I hope it's the same story that creative uh, minds in the middle will tell us. The, um, but do you come away more perky? Can you perk us up, basically? <laughs> so, did, some stuff does work.
2: I, th- I think that's definitely a, a takeaway. And I, I guess more specifically, something that's maybe even more encouraging was the things that young people really highlighted as being important to them or making a difference were things that I think probably most people in Westminster would think of as being pretty basic. So, uh, particularly, we asked young people, you know, if you could you know, wave a magic wand, you know, change the world of work and improve it, you know, what would you do? We sort of said, you know, no no limits, it can be as expensive as you like. We didn't hear anything particularly radical or expensive, it was really just, I'd quite like a manager who cares, young people saying, you know, it's great, I have like a weekly 10 minute meeting with my manager, isn't that amazing? Uh, You know, things that I, I think a lot of us would just take for granted, but actually in particularly these sectors like retail and hospitality, Mm. just that isn't the reality for a lot of young people. Um, Similarly, when we talked to young people about school and college, again, it was sort of saying, and particularly, I think what came away quite strongly was colleges as opposed to secondary schools. Many young people highlighted that having a a teacher or a lecturer or someone in an educational setting that believes in them, that cares about them was really important. And many of these young people who maybe weren't particularly academic, didn't see themselves going to university, commented that actually a college, as an experience, was really beneficial to them. You know, we had some really powerful um, discussions with young people saying, you know, at school, if you got a question wrong, there was a feeling like you know you're going to fail, you're not going to get your A-levels. And young people saying, you know, I then felt frightened to even say anything in class because I just had this feeling of fear and and failure whereas at college many young people reflected just the the general atmosphere was different maybe expectations were different and a bit more realistic and they felt like they could thrive in that environment a little bit more
0: so be a good manager people Mm. all of you i mean it comes across really clearly decent management i mean it's a general thing about britain could you sort out your management but um but Um, it comes across really really and why
1: do we always talk about productivity in terms of like technology and like you know, machines rather than productivity in terms of use of people's time and good management being about skill allocation. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really frustrating. This problem has been there in the UK for so long. Time to fix it.
0: Well, I I hear that's what, you know, governments get to do, so they can try that. Right, I'm gonna give a microphone to this gentleman here, but before I come to your question, sir, I just wanna put our first poll to move us into this. So I said earlier we were gonna talk a bit about silos. So the poll you're getting today the, um, which hopefully you can see here. So what's actually going to happen, this is, is what this poll is asking you. So it's a big issue. Bits of government are slowly kind of gearing up to what on earth do we think about this, which is about time, they, um, but they don't know. Stuff will start happening. So new agendas, new policy spaces are going to open up. And the question is, what is actually going to drive what government actually does? Because in the real world, know these things don't happen in a perfectly joined up way in the real world usually a department ends up leading so is what's going to happen everyone is mainly going to focus on the what on earth is happening to the teenagers banning mobile phones in schools maybe banning mobile phones full stop um, uh, and the rest in the education space will it be a health-led which obviously discouraging people from going down but there just lots more provision of mental health services so that's the health that's the second answer Will it be, there's a bit cheating here on the Work and Pensions and Treasury because Work and Pensions is both of these, but anyway, will it be the Work and Pensions side, which is basically act labour market policies, hubs, careers guidance um, and the rest? Or will it be the Treasury, which will basically be, have you seen what's happening to uh, ill health and disability benefit spending? And, you know, if you're in the Treasury now, you are looking at that line a lot because it's doing this and you're saying that can't happen. Um, and you will end up with, like, all else equal, if that line stays looking like what it looks like now, we'll end up with something like carving young people out of disability benefits, because that's what history tells you happens when those lines look like that. They, um, people start looking at reform packages. to say, I can't, you know, maybe in a positive way, they might say less cash and instead more service provision, but that is the kind of world we end up in. So which one of those is actually going to end up donating? So let's just go around the panel and get your take, and then let's have this gentleman's thing. Go ahead, Joe, what's going to happen?
4: Well, as you say, Treasury are already talking about this. They are concerned about the um, decline in working age health. And hopefully, that that will be a catalyst for driving some real cross-government action.
0: So is that a perky version? Is that a perky answer for uh, uh, number yeah. four?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll just sit on the fence again.
3: I just hope that That's very that, bold, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> for, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an academic, i <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, no I hope that the Department for Work and Pensions will start okay. to take a more holistic view of the factors that are driving the distress, whilst not downplaying or denying the distress, but look at what's what's driving that and where a wider range of social policy interventions and support will actually help.
0: Right, you actually get to decide-ish.
4: Well, Part I don't actually get to,
1: but I'm going to say with the support and collaboration with all my colleagues, I'm going to go for DWP because... You've no, got to back yourself, right? <laughs> well, this,
0: this gentleman thinks you should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you no. want to vote?
1: Um,
2: I think I think education is actually going to be increasingly important over the next few decades. Just when you look at the trends among children as well as young people, all the focus on smartphones at the um, at the moment. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> yeah, didn't plant him there. Yeah. Um, and I think just the final thing is just it's just where children and young people go every day. So if we we're to think of a service that is like really like on the front line, if we were to say like it, it is schools and colleges.
0: Okay, let's bring up the results. What did democracy decide?
1: Who were the electorate? This lot. Oh right, okay. Totally. Okay. Very persuasive. There
0: you go. Education, and I think that basically is actually going to be what ends up happening, because the politics. So the Treasury, the fiscal, the fiscal pressure is going to put. Treasury is going to act. <coughs> on the fiscal pressure side, and that is going to push a debate along because the numbers look so terrifying. And the, basically the education system, because that is where the politics of blind panic is basically, and it's the bit where it's majoritarian because everyone's worried about it because everybody's seeing it and everyone goes to school, where some of the other problems are really important, but basically people aren't seeing them day to day. And it turns out the politics is a bit responsive to what majority see, who knew. So I'm with the punters on this. Ian, D is the right answer. Right, let's have your question, so give us your name.
1: Uh, yeah, hi, I'm uh, Andrew, senior researcher at Demos, um, and I'm gonna pick up the labour market policy side. And I just wanted to ask um, Alison specifically, uh, what Labour's proposed youth futures hubs, what is their relationship to the existing network of DWP youth hubs? And um, I guess in particular, kind of what's the, what, what are your thoughts on more broadly, I guess, the integration of employment support and mental health support? Okay, I mean, uh, pretty straightforward in the um, view on the integration of um, employment support and mental health support is, like, where it's happening already, it looks like it's working. So we should be trying to focus really clearly on what about it is good. And I think recognizing that complete loop between good work and good health is underneath it. Um, on the um, hubs um, point, at the moment, you know, what DWP are doing with the youth hubs is quite varied across the country, but it's not um, it's not really big enough, and I think it also hasn't, like, I think we haven't had enough attention on it, and our policy to localise employment support is about recognising the point I mentioned at the beginning, which is, you know, there's Geography itself is not the problem, but so many of the challenges that young people face cluster geographically. So we need to figure out how we want to measure the improvements that we want to see, and then empower places to really take a lead and bring public services together to address the specifics of the geography in the place. One so of the
0: questions online is, how does that avoid becoming a postcode lottery? Which obviously the labour
1: market, know. the labour market is a postcode lottery oh, right that's very now. Very honest answer. So so public services have got to respond to that. It's no good you know, doing the same thing everywhere if the problems people face are radically different everywhere.
0: It's true, people. We should touch a bit. We haven't touched a lot on this. We should touch a bit on the, because I think, look, again, so what, what appears in the papers mainly about this kind of issue day to day is often university students is the bit that gets a lot of the attention, right, because the, the, the rise is large. As you say, they're concentrated in educational institutions, so the institution is like, and the an institution's charging them a lot of money, so the institution is like, oh god, we better be seen to be doing something about this, and the numbers are scary. So the rise of what? Uh, you didn't have you you put that figure in your. It's yeah. big anyway, I can't remember what the number is, but uh, there's a large rise of universities. But actually, if you take the programme of work as a whole, you wouldn't be panicking about universities, you'd be panicking about places mm. a long way away from universities.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we don't need to fight about which one is more important, like we shouldn't downplay the the rise in poor mental health among students, but uh, I think our conclusion was, if we're thinking about this in the round, and particularly about the knock-on impacts on young people's future employment um, and, and, and living standards, you know, students on the one hand do have access to sort of significant and sort of increasing support through their institutions, so most universities as well as, you know, Uh, offer additional counselling or mental health support, um, as well as the sort of core NHS provision, and those not going to university, those doing apprenticeships or at colleges basically have have much less, you know, their college might do something if they can find the funding, but the the provision of that extra support is is much less. And secondly, just when we look at young people, when they leave university and they become graduates, both their um, sort of prevalence of mental health decreases, so it does seem to be there's something sort of uniquely Distressing stressing about being at university that, by and large, does decrease as young people uh, leave. And secondly, just when they leave and enter the labour market, by virtue of having a degree, Massively. they are much more advantaged. They you know, have access to a wider pool of jobs. Um, you know, we, we just know that graduates are, are much more advantaged when it comes to being in work and being in high paid, high, high paid work overall.
0: And 80% of the people who are out of work, who are workless because of mental health. GCC qualified or lower that's 80% so if you're going to be focusing on like bulk of issues that is where our problem lies right then to wrap us up let's just do some big picture so in five years time there's another resolution foundation event uh, will it be looking at how we got a the tide was turned some of these really scary lines showing exponential growth start to slow down We've worked out how to provide the services which we don't do work and they're available in the quantities that are required. Management has sorted themselves out. Um, Or are we going to have muddled through and be kicking ourselves that we've left another generation to come through? Five years, that's most of people's secondary school. That's all of their school to work transition, basically, from 18 to to 24, which is what matters. So where are we gonna be in five years, Joe?
4: I think we have to be optimistic, and people are talking about this in a way that they weren't even two years ago, three years ago, so I think it can change.
0: Very good. I am not sure that's a prediction. I think that was, that'd be nice. <laughs> it would be nice. But it would be nice if that was true. Annie, you can't be on the fence on this. OK,
3: no, I hope that with the changes like the Youth Futures subs there will be a more holistic approach to barriers to work, that we've we've done the good job of raising awareness of mental health, and now it's almost time to start pulling that apart again to say what's what, so what's lying beneath this and how do we address those component parts um, and what goes on in the workplace is really important um, I think the report recommends man- managing mental health awareness but again I'd, I'd almost want to make a piece to sort of slightly demedicalise that it's about good support in general for everyone yeah. and what a lot of the young people good manager. Yeah, yeah what a lot of the young people in, in our study are saying is that they want to feel like they fit in and they belong and they can make friends at work and actually that's when I've been looking at these transitions what keeps people there is feeling like they're playing a useful role in a place they belong. I've got some quotes from past, you know, I want to be somewhere that, that feels like home, not a job. Somewhere there where people support each other, console each other, where they make friends and they fit in. They don't feel like a square peg in a round hole. And no matter what distressing circumstances people are in, if, if work is that kind of place, people will stay in their job and feel like it's a place they can be and be supported. So I hope there's a more of that in workplaces, um, which comes through secure employment. That's
0: great. And Louise?
2: Um, I agree. I think there's reasons to be hopeful. As Joe said, we're talking about this more. I think, as you say, it just has caught people's attention. Maybe that's partly the experience of COVID or or whatever else. But um, I think it's widely seen as being an important issue. Um, And also, I think just we can look to the past and we have dealt with other big issues successfully. Again, the, the, the example we draw on is, you know, musculoskeletal know, we still have people working in construction and healthcare so it's not as if we've had to totally like shift our economy like we still have people working as nurses which Mm -hmm. can be bad for your back but what we've done is just think how can we mitigate that risk and I think by taking a similar approach and thinking how can we make retail and hospitality jobs feel more inclusive feel more supportive for for young people rather than feeling like they're as as we hear from young people you know a robot at at work that's not what people want
0: We want health and safety to go madder, (laughs) basically. Right, Alison, last word to you. Where are we going to be in five years? And don't just be like, they'll have elected me woohoo. I
1: I mean, as if, mate, as if. (laughs) Nobody has cast a single vote yet. Uh, And no complacency at all. Um, But I do tend to agree with Louise in that um, my dad used to go out every week and do a job where he dug the railway track and it was dangerous and now a robot does that job and railway engineers have much better quality jobs. That is the journey we can go on.
0: Very good, look, let's, that's a pretty perky ending more or less from a not totally perky uh, conversation, but it's not a totally perky um, subject. So can we thank our panel for all their <laughs> thoughts today? Thank you all for coming. And as we, It's a complicated business, right? And lots of you, you can tell, work in different kind of bits of this. They, um, so that's lots of different angles for you all to go out and improve the world on. Off you go. <laughs> so now, see you in five years. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.